you are sick of oppressive religious systems but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally. You just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey everyone, before we jump into the interview, just a couple of quick words about our sponsors, Rise Nutrition from Menominee. You can find out all about what they have going on by going to Facebook and looking up Rise Menominee, and that's Rise with a Z, or give Angie a call at 715 309 2706. And then our friends over at Infinity Beverages, don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members. And if you want more information on how to sign up or if you want to order online, go to infinitybeverages.com. This week, we are going to tackle a subject that I'm pretty sure almost nobody wants to talk about, but all of us know it's an important topic that we need to talk about, which is sexual addiction. This is something that is ravishing our world right now. It's ruining so many relationships. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this for two weeks. This week, we're going to look through the lens of somebody who has an addiction. Next week, we're going to look through the lens of somebody who is married to, friends with, partners with somebody who has an addiction. So we're going to be hearing from husband and wife, Michael, John Cusick, and Julianne Cusick. They are the co-founders of Restoring the Soul. This week, Michael, who's a licensed professional counselor, spiritual director, speaker, and author, is going to share his story of addiction and going to help us understand some of the underlying factors that come with it and also how to overcome sexual addiction. And then next week, Julianne, who holds a master's degree in family and marriage therapy, she's going to talk to us about betrayal trauma. And what that means is we're going to look through the lens of somebody who has been betrayed by somebody that they love because of sexual addiction. So with that said, let me introduce to you, Michael John Cusick. My story is really in the present day, I am a psychotherapist. I run a ministry that cares for clergy and other caregivers. And I have been a professor and an academic in the past. And how I arrived at all of that was really through what I call the Delta. And the Delta is the the fourth letter in the Greek alphabet. But in science and the military, that letter Delta represents a gap. It represents the gap between where point A is and point B or where we are and where we want to be. Spiritually speaking, the delta might serve as this gap between what we believe and what we actually experience or 
what we've been told the Christian life should be about and what it actually is in us. And so my story is really one of that huge gap where I grew up in an Irish Catholic alcoholic family. I was sexually abused at the age of four, and that continued for many years. I was exposed to pornography when I was eight. When I was in my early teens, I really became addicted to pornography long before there was an internet. Uh, so at 16, I had this moment where I heard that God loved me and that he knew everything about me and that he loved me and that Jesus died for my sins. And I went from growing up uh, a nominal Roman Catholic and being confirmed in the seventh grade and then really kind of walking away from my faith and saying it didn't matter and would have, would have told you that I didn't believe in God to this profound moment when I was 16, it culminated in me having a very powerful conversion, kind of a day and night conversion. And I was one of these obnoxious teenagers that told my parents that they were going to hell. And I told my uh, local Catholic priest who confirmed me that he was going to hell, which of course just made me very endeared to them, I'm sure. But what happened is I had this powerful experience and I started to change on the outside, and my life became oriented around Bible study, and I began to memorize a lot of scripture. And I think externally, my life became very other-centered. But what happened is that the wounds that I had carried through 16 years, and the shame, and the beliefs, and the anxiety, and the lingering depression that was there, that got pushed underneath, almost like a beach ball, where this was all handed to me and I didn't know what to do with it. And then I heard, well, God loves me and I'm forgiven. So, okay, just push this down underneath. And the, the harder I tried as a young Christian, the deeper that went. And then it eventually, within a year, started to pop up. And I would find myself compulsively masturbating and breaking into my dad's locked footlocker and going through dumpsters looking for pornography. I found myself crossing boundaries sexually that didn't feel right to me internally because it wasn't about any kind of an intimate or caring relationship. It was really about sexual gratification. And I found myself relationally paralyzed. So I was very extroverted and I could be around people. I was told I could be charming and winsome, but if I got close to someone and was two feet away and looking into their eyes, I would have to crack a joke or I would be distracted or I would look away from them because the fear was that if anybody saw into me, they wouldn't want anything to do with me and they'd say I was a complete fraud. So I would say that I succeeded at that game for a number of years where there was this internal battle with sexual compulsion, lust, what eventually I labeled as sexual addiction. And that carried through my teens into my early 20s, where one day after I graduated college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started a painting business and I walked up to the site where I was working and the local newspaper was there. As a recent college grad, I didn't afford, couldn't afford a newspaper. So big headline across the newspaper, FBI raids prostitution ring. And I picked it up and I realized this was the prostitution ring. I invested hundreds and hundreds of dollars in, uh, frankly, to exploit women to feed my, my addictive needs. So suddenly, this is out. This is public. In that community, there was a professional athlete and a politician that were implicated in this. So it became this huge deal, and my life imploded. And though my name never appeared in the newspaper, I called really the only person that I trusted who was my sister, who had walked through a lot of her own deep pain. 
she sent me to a Christian counselor and uh, within 24 hours, I was sitting in that counselor's office and uh, did a journey with him for a couple of years to begin to process some of the abuse and experience some profound healing. I got married as a result of that healing, but the addiction came back three years into my marriage. I blew up my marriage. Uh, my wife discovered that I had been deeply involved in sexual addiction and adultery and alcohol abuse. And by God's grace, I'm still married to Julianne today. We just celebrated 29 years. But that turned my life upside down. It didn't just almost tank my marriage. It turned my life upside down. And the journey that I've been on since then, and that was 26 years ago, has really begun to shape and reshape my understanding of God, Christianity, the gospel, sexuality, spirituality, how they're all interrelated, and frankly, how God's great, great passion is simply to get us to trust him like a child to a parent. And that's the essence of Christianity. And I believe that I, quote unquote, had to go through all of that to be able to get to this place where, you know, I'm now able to help others experience that same message, which usually happens, Matt, in this gap, in this space between, you know, what we believe and what we're told to expect, but what we actually experience. Because what we believe about God will never become deeply internalized in us until we actually experience what we believe about God. And the way that Christianity has been talked about, taught, and framed by so many, experience is seen as a villain, and it's de-emphasized, and it's delegitimized, and what is really held up is rationality and getting information. But information and knowledge about God will never change a human heart. Such a powerful statement, and so true, because you can't rationalize your way into falling in love with God, just like you can't rationalize your way into falling in love with anyone. When I fell in love with my wife, it wasn't for any rational reasons. Zero rational reasons came into play with my relationship with my wife, Susie. And so the same could be said of our relationship with God. One of my favorite authors, Richard Rohr, he writes that you can experience God the most through great love, and through great suffering. And Michael's life and his experience with sexual addiction shows that in really profound ways. I came to Christ, as it were. I was saved, as we speak about it, in 1980. But uh, I used to run a counseling center at an inner city rescue mission. And one day they held this conference where this, frankly, kind of obnoxious, famous evangelist came in and around the staff of about 30 people, he went to each person and he got in our face. And I mean, I was like, I don't know, I was 26 or seven at this time. And in retrospect, I would probably, you know, go, this feels traumatizing. I'm going to get up and walk out. But he'd get in our face and he'd go, what's the date that you accepted Jesus? And people are going around the table and, you know, everybody's got a date. And then they got to me and this was just two years after I blew my life apart and all of this fresh understanding of God's grace was there. And I said, uh, I'm not sure. Um, I either became a Christian in 1980 or 1994. You know, and all these Christians around the table were looking at me like, wow, we, we're not even sure you should work here because this is a, a Christian ministry. And I said, well, to be more honest, I, I think I got saved in 1980, but 
I came to know the love of God for the first time in 1994. And I would argue that in retrospect, getting saved really is getting to know the love of God, because it's not a big job for God to have us go to heaven, but it is a big job for God to actually get us to experience his love because he gives up his power to allow us to choose knowing his love. And it actually doesn't take a lot of vulnerability to pray a prayer or the four spiritual laws and say, Jesus, I believe in you, and I'm a sinner, and I commit my life to you. That doesn't take vulnerability or faith, but it takes great faith to say, right now, I've got no game. Right now, there's no reason that anybody should love me. My wife, for example, who I betrayed, but God, who has no reason to love me, he actually doesn't just love me, he likes me. When he looks at me, his face beams with pride, he smiles at me. And, and I would say all of this on my worst day, in my darkest moment, when I was soliciting prostitutes, when I was in strip clubs, when I was going out on my lunch hour working at a mental health clinic treating substance abusers, and I would go do shots of tequila on my lunch hour just to uh, try to numb the ache and the shame inside of myself. In those moments, because God sees something deeper, God sees the precious treasure, uh, the pearl of great price that's buried inside of us, he doesn't knit his brow, he doesn't frown, he doesn't say, uh, not met my expectations, he doesn't say that we are not a good return on his investment. He's not disappointed with us. And that is the miracle of the gospel. It's, uh, it's stunning. The, the gospel is much more than just a transaction of something that Jesus did on the cross. And it's much more than just a message or a proposition that we give to someone. I think that the most basic and yet most profound definition of the gospel is this. The gospel is who God is. The gospel is, is God declaring through a megaphone, I am like this. Well, like what? Not just Jesus dying on the cross, but do you want to know what God is like? Yes. What is he like? Well, he's like Jesus. There's a quote from um, Bruce Shelley, the late great church historian at Denver Seminary. And he has written a book, uh, I think it was written back in the early 70s, about church history that is probably the most prolific book in any kind of modern Christianity about church history. And here's the opening sentence of that book. Christianity is the only religion in history whose central focus is the humiliation of its God. What is God like? God's a God that chooses humiliation to express his love. God is a God who says, I love you at the expense of my own broken heart. And God is not a God who punishes. He's not a God who says, you broke the rules and now you have it coming. But more accurately, and maybe more historically, what the cross is about is God saying, let me show you what I'm like. The historic question from the Garden of Eden forward, the deception was, is God good? Can you really trust him? Or is he holding out on you? Did he really say that you can't touch that tree? And, and so that all gets muddled and confused so that the two great lies in human history are, what is God like? We get that wrong. What is a human like? We get that wrong because we've, we've said that we're fundamentally bad. But God says, let me give you my final answer. 
as to what I'm like. I lose my power to show you my love. I give away my power. I don't want to sound like I'm the, the guy with the right answer or some kind of hipster, all-knowing person, but I just think we've, we've trivialized the gospel to a proposition and a transaction as opposed to a revelation of what, what this person of Jesus Christ is like and how he's the visible image of the invisible God in a way that I think would be so compelling for believers and unbelievers alike, because we're all looking for and searching for and hungry for the same thing. And that is we want to be deeply known and attached and connected to other and we want to be wanted and safe and secure in that attachment. And ultimately, the Christian story, at least as it was originally told, is that that's the Christian story. That's what God is like. And in my sexual addiction, I was looking for that God. G.K. Chesterton said, Matt, that the man knocking on the brothel door is knocking for God. So my little book I wrote about my sex addiction and porn I, I thought, well, if that's true, what Chesterton said, then maybe the man or woman surfing the internet for porn is surfing for God. And so the God that modern American Christianity has, has put out there is not a God that will satisfy the hunger of the human heart. It will give us forgiveness, and it might give us inspiration to try to be better people, but it won't feed our souls in a way that actually makes addictions and compulsions less compelling. What a massive perspective shift. Instead of looking at this as this unspoken thing that we can't talk about because it's just too disgusting, too dirty, too uncomfortable to speak of, what if instead of that, we looked at this and we said, anybody who's struggling with sexual addiction is likely simply knocking at the door trying to find God. I think maybe that would open up some doors of conversations that we've never had opened before if we simply looked at this with that perspective. This probably goes without saying, but one of the most obvious and probably one of the most challenging struggles in sexual addiction is the addiction and availability of pornography. Because I work so closely with people that are broken and wounded and addicted, I've chosen not to become an anti-pornography advocate. Um, when my book first came out, I got invited to speak at a lot of sex trafficking conferences and things like that, and not so much anymore. And it's because I believe that pornography is destructive, but I want to put my energy toward wholeness as opposed to either shutting it down, which I hope would happen, or becoming an advocate and being an anti-pornography person. But it is absolutely destructive. And there's a growing number of Christians who say, you know, porn really isn't a problem. Yes, it's addictive, but it's just it's just naked bodies. And there's uh, many, many, many people in the secular world who have written about how pornography, number one, exploits the people within the industry, uh, how even recently uh, there has been a major, major 
opposition to Pornhub.com because there's this internationally known corporation that's making money and they have child pornography all over their website. And they have images around people that are trafficked and exploited. And this is something that people can just pay for. And others might say, yes, but not all of it is like that. But the bottom line is that pornography is a kind of false intimacy. And on the internet versus what I grew up with, where you know I would look for magazines at 7-Eleven or try to take them from my dad's footlocker or my buddy's dad's garage, that it's like crack cocaine for our brain. And largely because there's an infinite amount of it and our brain craves novelty and it gives us this massive dopamine rush. And you're right, many, many people are addicted. The church isn't talking about it well. So I'll be on different programs and people will say, how bad is the problem? And the statistics are always changing. And I say, it's this bad. It's like secondhand smoke. So whether you're even a smoker or not, you can still die from secondhand smoke. And so there's a, a culture where we are now pornified. My family and I, we watch this one cop show on Netflix pretty often. And every episode, there are jokes that just normalize guys viewing porn. And the interesting thing is, is that they're making those jokes in front of women in the workplace, and the women are nodding their heads and joking about it. And although they're not coming out and saying that they're looking at porn, it's all implied. And so I just like to say, hey, everybody is or would be addicted to porn, but not everybody is wired. You know, other people might be addicted to food. So how do we deal with it? Uh, what do we do? Well, historically, Matt, there's two approaches in Christianity. One is you label it a sin and you ratchet down your moral will and you say, I'm going to stop. This is what Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management. So we're forgiven. And what we do in our life is we just try to manage our sins. On the other hand, if you can't stop looking at porn, you're an addict. You need to go to 12 step meetings and you have a disease the rest of your life. And the 12 steps saved my life at one point in my life, but I no longer primarily identify as I'm an addict. I do have those tendencies. The first thing we need to realize is that neither of those approaches uh, really allow us to flourish. And what I tell people, the, the first thing to realize regarding porn is that any and every issue with pornography or illicit sexual acting out, you know, hooking up with people and you can't stop or you don't want to be doing that or cyber sex or sexting, it's not about sex. It's not about too high of a sex drive. Uh, it's, it's, it's not about being horny. It's really about something else. And there's an interesting little verse in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, as uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in the message. And he said that sex is more than just skin on skin. It's as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. And what, tell, what that tells us is that there's something going on in sex that is much more than people panting and having orgasms that there's this searching in our heart for connection, that there is a longing for union, for communion. I like to say that most of us who have been around the church know what God says about sex, but have we ever thought about what does sex say about God? And it says that God is a God that loves pleasure. God is a God that exists in some form where there's an ecstasy, that God wants to be so close that it's like skin on skin. That when he gave us the Eucharist, the bread 
and the wine at the Last Supper, it was as if he was saying, I want you to be in me and I want to be in you. I want you to take me and to to touch your lips with my very substance. I want you to drink me in. Well, those are highly erotically charged terms that we often don't think of it in those ways. But God is a God, as Rob Bell described years ago in his uh, lesser-known books, Sex God, uh, that there are, there are deep, profound connections between our sexuality and our spirituality. And I actually believe that if we look under the hood of our porn struggle, we can actually fan the flames of our Christian spirituality, because what we're looking for in porn is really what we long for with God. So the first thing, understanding this, that it's not about sex, it's about something else. Number two, that it's not that we have wicked desires, it's that we mishandle our desires. You know, most people know the verse, maybe they have a little crocheted plaque at home that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And most people go, whoops, I better delight myself in the Lord. I'm not doing that. But no one talks about, and I've never heard a sermon about, he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, what are those desires? Thomas Aquinas, the great philosopher, said that every sinful behavior, and remember you speaking in, I think, the 13th century, Every sinful behavior is rooted in a legitimate God-given appetite. So if I'm addicted to porn, and I was, and if I'm lying to my wife, and I was, then there's actually a legitimate God-given appetite for why I'm doing what I'm doing. And if all I do is focus on, I'm bad, I should stop this, I should get more accountability, I should manage my sin then there's never going to be an opportunity to actually look at and understand what my heart is seeking. So it's a mishandling of our desires and it's a mishandling of our pain because we've never learned at an earlier stage in life how to handle our pain in a way where we can be soothed, where we can feel safe, and where another can be there to actually meet our needs. As I'm listening to Michael John speak, I'm starting to believe and understand that the way that we've approached this as a whole in Christianity, at least my experience, couldn't be more wrong and probably has actually hurt people even more. It certainly hasn't helped all that much because we're approaching it as the sin issue that just needs to get stopped. But I think anybody who's had any sort of addiction or any sort of struggle, which is all of us, can certainly say that that's just not how it works. You can't just snap your fingers and it goes away. That's just never how it works. There's some inner struggle going on. And the reality is, just as Michael has been saying, everything is spiritual. So this is spiritual as well. Sexual addiction is just as spiritual as anything else. I've often said that any strength that you have has a really evil underside. So if you have a strength, for example, such as passion, passion can be one of the greatest strengths that anybody can have on this world because it can be used for so much good. But on the other side of that strength can be lust. And that's just flipping passion around. And the interesting thing is they're really not that far apart. I like to think of it as there's this line. And on one side of that line would be passion right on the other side of that line is lust. You don't have to move too far either way to find either one. And I really think that's what we're doing here is if you can manage to understand where this addiction is rooted in, 
which is what Michael John is talking about. If you can manage to find that, find the spiritual place that is being desired, that can be the root of the healing and the overcoming. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of a teaser for next week because I do not want to have this conversation without considering the voice of the other. So many spouses, partners get so deeply wounded, so deeply wounded when their spouse or partner has a sexual addiction. And so Michael John's going to give us a little bit of a teaser about what his wife, Juliana, is going to talk about next week. Yeah, my advice to a partner with a spouse who is sexually addicted or porn addicted is uh, to not underestimate the impact on you. Um, My experience is that, at least for the last 10 years, that many women, regardless of their age, if they have a boyfriend, fiance, live-in partner or spouse or sibling or parent, who is struggling with this, that there's an initial sense of shock, hurt, et cetera, and then almost a, uh, a requirement that says, well, I should forgive and, and move on, and maybe I'll tell them you can't do this anymore. But there's research that started about, oh, 12 years ago coming out of Berkeley, and uh, Dr. Omar Minwala, among others, coined the term sexual addiction-induced trauma, or what's more commonly known as betrayal trauma. And that betrayal trauma literature is suggesting that, and this, this research is done with women, so I know it can be the other way around, where a woman can commit adultery or have an addiction, and then the, the husband might feel this, but the, the research is with women, that a woman who discovers or it's disclosed a husband's pornography or sexual addiction or infidelity, that that woman can and is likely to have all the same symptoms as if she was sexually assaulted herself. So post-traumatic stress disorder can develop, but symptoms of uh, intrusion and uh, an awakening and a, a reactivity of the nervous system going into fight or flight mode, sleep difficulties, uh, trigger response, intrusive thoughts, anxiety, depression. And then on the other side, feelings of numbness, detachment, a sense of kind of being there but not being there, difficulty functioning. And then the biggest symptom is that the husband, who is the betrayer in this research, becomes a trigger either through presence or word or, quote, relapsing, that triggers this trauma reaction and it just creates a vicious cycle where oftentimes when the spouse who's triggered and traumatized reacts, either by escalating or withdrawing, then that causes the addict to use again and it goes around and around. And sadly, in the Christian world, there's this sense of forgive, forget, move on, you know, porn addict, go talk to your pastor, get an accountability partner, and they never get any help. When people who are motivated, educated, and really want to change are not changing, it's usually that something is missing, not being seen or considered. And trauma is a very significant part of why people actually are addicted as opposed to, well, it's just a bad habit. But it can be absolutely devastating. I mean, it took my wife seven years after I blew our marriage up and she discovered my double life, seven years to get to a place where she wasn't angry and reactive. And back then we didn't know about trail trauma. And that's how she got into doing what she does. She's a marriage and family therapist and works almost exclusively with women who have experienced betrayal and infidelity. 
I don't know about you, but I am extremely excited to hear that interview next week with Julianne Cusick. When it comes to sexual addiction, I'm just going to be brutally honest now. When it comes to sexual addiction, because of the depths that we see in our world today, I mean, infidelity, all the way to human trafficking, all the way to child pornography. I mean, we could go as deep as we want here. So when it comes to sexual addiction, it's really hard for me sometimes to have hope because it seems so deep and so dark right now that it's difficult for me to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So Michael John is somebody who works with people struggling with addiction like this on a regular basis. And so maybe if for nothing else for myself, I needed to ask him if he sees any hope, any light at the end of the tunnel, any possibility that we could see a change, a I mean, I, I will never expect to live in a world minus sexual addiction, but is it possible that the scales could tip even a little bit? I have a lot of hope because uh, the prayer I probably most frequently pray is our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. And I like to personalize that and say, God, may your kingdom come into me in the places where I'm petty and judgmental and angry and impatient and lustful and gluttonous. May your kingdom come into me and then may it flow through me into my marriage and into my family and into the neighborhood where I live and on and on and on. And God's kingdom is just this place where heaven happens here. And the promise of the gospel is that heaven gets to happen in anybody who wants it. And pornography or alcoholism or being an addicted gambler or an addicted shopper, all of those things captivate our heart in ways where our heart gets bound up entangled and our heart is in bondage and our heart's no longer free to have heaven happen here. So the only reason that God's concerned about sin, which is absolutely destructive and the problem in the world today, is not because you or I or the said sinner is bad, but because sin stands in the way of God's love being manifest in us and through us and in the world today. Somebody said that, uh, a raindrop never considers itself responsible for the flood. So whatever problems are in the world today that I you know, complain about or roll my eyes when I read the news, it all comes back to me. You know, I have been part of the chain that's bound up women in uh, sexual oppression and exploitation. It all comes back to how I live, how we live. And the good news is that we're not condemned for any ways where we miss the mark and that we're invited to live in ways where we're free. And I think that the, the struggle with sexuality is an opportunity as opposed to a crisis. I'm seeing pockets in my counseling office, places I speak, people that listen to our podcasts are saying, you know, you're, you're saying something that's a little bit different and it's a little bit scary, but it makes me want God again. And it, it makes me want to believe. And it, and it goes, yeah, I would want that, but I don't want that. Because 
so much of modern Christianity has resulted in us becoming less human and less awake and alive and full of joy. And Christianity was meant to make us more human and more fully alive. It's all about becoming more fully alive. And somebody who has a sexual addiction, I mean, any sort of addiction, it is the opposite of being fully alive. So finding the root of where that's coming from, not just the physical root, finding the spiritual root of where that addiction resides is going to be the beginning of overcoming. Special thanks to Michael John Cusick for all of his wisdom that he shared with us today. I mean, that was profound and powerful all the way through. Find out more about what he's up to at RestoringTheSoul.com. There's also an incredible Restoring the Soul podcast that you absolutely have to check out. Subscribe to it. Give him a rating and a review. Definitely do that. And then you can find him on Twitter at Michael S. Cusick. That's C-U-S-I-C-K. Of course, best way you can support this podcast is subscribing, writing a review, and giving us a five-star rating. And until next time, keep walking.